0: San Diego, which isn't cheap property, but you find property to purchase. So that's got to be wildly expensive. And then you put a beautiful building on it. That's got to be wildly expensive. Who's giving you the money?
1: Yeah, great question. So uh, this was a three-year process and there were lots of false starts. There were Hmm. lots of projects that we got down the road, lots of buildings that looked interesting. But one of the first things I discovered is that to go out and rent or lease property was about the same cost for me to go out and buy a piece of real estate and so i knew if i could buy if i could somehow figure out how to buy the real estate i knew my monthly cash flow was going to be similar but i knew the long-term benefits of owning the real estate were going to be enormously better for me so i got fixated on this idea of i want to buy a piece of property and we're in a very densely um, compacted area in um, uh, just north of downtown san diego and so Getting the building the right size, plus the parking that you need, was really the the tricky thing to do. And there was a bit, there were a couple of false starts, like I mentioned. But there was a building um, down the street, and I used to pass it, and I used to love the building. I said, "Man, I love that building." And just think to myself, and maybe point a few little thoughts upstairs, and say, "You know, if this building is for me, let me know." Mm. So I had a patient come in one day, and he was in, it was an engineering firm that was in this building. And um, he came in, and I told him, I said, hey, listen, if that building ever goes for sale, you know, let me know. And he said, oh, sure. Well, I never heard from the guy. And so not very much longer after that, I was just driving around the neighborhood, and lo and behold, there's a lease for lease sign in front of this building. And I thought, wow, okay, maybe I can't afford to buy it, but maybe I can afford to lease it. So it was a very iconic building, um, uh, built in the sixties, very, uh, mid-century modern design. It's kind of one of those buildings where everybody in the neighborhood really recognizes it, but it was pretty run down because the current owner had not done much to maintain it. And so I just contacted the broker and I said, listen, I don't want to lease this building. I want to buy it. Uh, will, will the, will the owner sell it to me? And he said, I don't know. Let me, let me find out. So the guy calls me back. Um, almost immediately. He's like, yeah, he'll sell it to you. Hmm. You know, and then we just started the negotiation process. And, um, it was, uh, it was quite an experience uh, learning how to buy a piece of commercial real estate, multiple millions of dollars, uh, got the price negotiated to what I thought was a fair price based on my research in the market. And I had a broker at the time that was mm-hmm. helping me and then became the challenge of getting the money. You said so it, you negotiated the you price there?
0: before you even got the money.
1: Yeah, because the first thing the bank is going to ask you is, well, how much? You know, what do you what do what you, do you what do you need? Right. How much is the building? And so when you go when you go into those negotiations with a lender and you've got all of your ducks in a row, you're you, you're much more credible than if somebody who comes in who sort of doesn't know what they're doing and isn't clear on the finances. So, I was very clear on the financials. I had my pro formas done. I had all my forecasting done. I had it really um, ready to go and um, uh, had the number, had a cash flow. I felt like I could make it work and um, went to the, all the regular banks, you know the Wells and the mm. B of As and all that, got rejected from everybody, everybody, because they just didn't feel like it was going to cash flow out. Mm. Now, obviously, they probably knew something that I didn't, uh, because once I got into the building, it was tight for a while. Hmm. Um, but we approached all the traditional lenders. And then there's a, mar- a sub market of lenders out there that, are, um, that love doctors. There's some banks out there that will do deals with doctors because doctors are typically um, pretty low risk.
0: Hello, and welcome to the Chris Wolf Podcast on iCode Media. Today I had a great conversation with Dr. Mick Kling. This is the second time I've had him on the podcast and you know him from Profit First and Impact OD. But what we really talked about today was his path from optometry school through his residency and through kind of all his history of of different practice opportunities and growing his practice to try to get at who Mick Kling is and kind of why he is doing the things he's doing right now. It was a lot of help for me to kind of, it was enlightening, uh, shed light on Mick as a, as a human and as an optometrist. So it was a lot of fun. Please enjoy our conversation. As always, be sure to subscribe to the podcast, give us a five-star review, share it with your friends, and support those who support us. We've been providing myopia control treatments in our practice for years. If you've been listening to the podcast for a while, CooperVision has received FDA approval of its innovative MySight one-day contact lens. This will be the cornerstone of a comprehensive myopia management approach to be offered by CooperVision. This daily wear, single-use contact lens is the first and only FDA-approved product clinically proven to slow the progression of myopia when initially prescribed for children 8 to 12 years old and when compared to children in the control group wearing a single-vision one-day contact lens. Check out the show notes for all the specific prescribing details and to get more information about this lens and how you can begin to offer it in your practice. When you came out of school, I mean, I think there's a, a really compelling story to tell is how do you get most of the time people here? well, I built a big practice. I got into, into problems with uh, having too much debt, too much outflow of cash. I, 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 I could never get over the cash flow pinch. Profit First allowed me to do that. Uh, but there's so much more in-depth that gets gets from one place to the next, and that's yeah. kind of what I'd like to talk about. Yeah, I'd love you know, so, to. I'd be happy to share that. Yeah. So so take me back to Mick Kling. Um, you went to SCC, SCO in Memphis. Yep. yep so uh, I, um, yeah, go ahead. I was just saying I'm a 93,
1: 1993 graduate of, of SCO. After uh, optometry school, I did a residency at Omega Eye Care Center. Omegas don't exist anymore, but they were the tertiary referral network, sort of like Omni. Mm -hmm. And I did uh, residency in ocular disease in Jackson, Tennessee, which is just right outside of Memphis. And um, that was- um,
0: Who was your preceptor? uh, Matt
1: Matt Hughes. Matt Hughes was the clinical director at the time. And um, it was an absolutely phenomenal experience. Um, And I remember- uh, just being overwhelmed the first several months, uh, clinically just because, you know, you're thrown to it. Every single patient was a problem that was referred in from pretty competent ODs around the community. And so everything was either a surgical case or a a problem cornea or a problem glaucoma case, not a glaucoma case, but a problem glaucoma case. So it was really, um, trial by fire and You know, we were responsible for doing all the fluorescein, we as in the residents were responsible for doing all the fluorescenes from all the way from injection to all the imaging and um, learned a lot about retinal anatomy when you sit and watch hundreds and hundreds of uh, fluorescein angiographies uh, blow through. Um, And uh, it was just a great clinical uh, growing experience for me and just really an absolute good time. Um, and that's something that i don't really talk about very much cuz it seems so long long ago but it really was uh, impactful in sort of directing me into sort of what the, what i wanted to do when i got out of school uh, well i think it's that important point I wasn't sure
0: yeah i think it's important to to hit that point because i think you've you've grown to be this you know sort of financial you know sort of guru within the profession to understand the financial aspects but when you and i were on a webinar this last month uh, I was talking about this idea of a total patient care model or a, com- a complete patient care model. And you picked up on immediately the fact that this these sort of, um, we'll call them loss leaders or advertising costs are built into the cake no matter what your profession is, whether you're an optometrist or an ophthalmologist. Yep. Ophthalmologists use those sorts of things. and And so I guess my point in saying that is that uh, I think it's important that people understand your background, and I also think it's it's really interesting when you got guys that really understand how to run a practice, that aren't just focused on business, but they understand all the aspects of the medical care of of optometry and, and for our patients. Yeah, and that I would impact say, what you're doing, did that impact it, at all what you're doing?
1: Yeah, it sure did. In fact, when I um, after I finished my residency, I was dating a girl that uh, I went to optometry school with, and she was from California. And because I was sort of directionless, 27, 28 years old, um, I just decided to come to California. I'd been out here a couple of times and just fell in love with it and came out and I landed a job with, uh, two ophthalmologists here in San Diego. And so I was really clinically motivated and clinically oriented and they like that. And so they brought me in I was the first time they really ever had an OD in an op, their ophthalmology practice. And back in those days, you know, uh, ophthalmology and optometry were definitely not very friendly in California and uh, optometry had very little scope of practice and and I remember coming out here not even really being able to treat blepharitis Hmm. and that was coming from Tennessee where we had full injections and you know uh, so it was quite a different experience but uh, one of the ophthalmologists was not a lot not too much older than me and um, he and I became very, very close friends and, and, and continue to be very close friends to this day. And so he is a New Yorker, um, you know, typical straight straight talker, and I just love that about him, but probably one of the most brilliant business minds that I've ever met, uh, even to this day. And, um, and so he was a very, very big influence on me and really became a mentor of mine. And in 1997, I remember standing in the hallway in the clinic one day, and he came up to me and he said, "Hey Mick, uh, there's this thing called LASIK that's coming, and uh, we got to we got to do this, man. We've got to get on this bandwagon, and we got to go. This is going to be really, really big." And I said, "Well, what do we do?" And he said, "I don't know. Let's let's talk about it." So over a beer, we uh, decided to just create a company, and we. Uh, rounded up 20 optometrists in San Diego and somehow got them to give us some money. And we went out, we bought a VizX laser for $600,000. Hmm. And um, I was probably 29 years old and I was the um, sort of spearheading this whole operation, had no clue what I was doing. Um, he was driving me because I think he could see the upside potential from h- for h- him as a surgeon and also for this company. And for me, it was like, you know, I just want to be a clinician and didn't have any business experience whatsoever. And so we went from hmm. uh, startup, we started that company from scratch, uh, grew it, and ultimately sold it to TLC, which became the TLC San Diego Center. Hmm. And so that was my, I tell you that because that was my first really foray into really the business side of any really any business and, in I care in particular and I fell in love with it. Hmm. I just fell in love with it. I fell in love with the idea of running companies, growing companies, looking at spreadsheets, um, thinking about how we could take it to the next level. Uh, and so from that point on my focus shifted from clinical to how do I grow businesses? Hmm. And then it just sort of evolved from there.
0: How did, um, so when, when you sold a TLC, uh, when was that? And then what what sort of infrastructure did you wind up selling to them? And and was it just the laser that you owned? Or did you all own pieces of this big practice? And how did that all work?
1: Yeah, so we had um, the, gr- the core group of ODs that were partners with me. We had a, what's called an MSO or a management services organization, which is a management company. And we had a friendly physician agreement with the surgeon that operated for us. When TLC became interested in us, they wanted the OD network, right? That, that's where the yep. value was. The surgeon company, the company that the surgeon sort of operated out, out of was essentially just a shell. The value was the OD referrals. Mm-hmm. So they actually acquired the assets of the MSO, which was the OD-owned um, company, because they knew that if they kept the glue of our group together they could move that over to tlc so they essentially purchased the assets of our mso including the, the laser because our mso actually owned the laser not the surgeon mm-hmm. and so we became a minority partner in the san diego uh, tlc center now at the time <clears throat> Uh, one surgeon out of Newport Beach named Tom Tuma controlled all of the rights to the TLC branding for the state of California hmm. so Tom was the uh, primary investor and then we had our group and then we had a third partner, which was also a minority stakeholder which was a uh, a local another local surgeon and so the these three entities owned this center in San Diego, uh, while Tom Tuma owned the rights to the branding. And then he had other TLC centers across the state that we did not have a financial interest in. In other words, we were just in the San Diego market. That was in 2002 when we made that transition. I became one of the clinical directors uh, along with Jim Owen. Uh, He's still there. And Jim is still there. Uh, Jim was the guy back in the days that was doing all the deals for TLC. Hmm. Uh, And so that's how Jim and I got to be very good friends because he was basically representing TLC and I was representing our company when we did the negotiation. Jim's from San Diego as well. And so when the San Diego Center got created, Jim and I became co-clinical directors of that San Diego Center in 2002. In 2006 – uh, I decided that I was going to go back into private practice. And I had one small part-time practice at the time, which I, which I bought in 1999. So I was running that practice alongside of being uh, my roles at, at TLC. And then, and then in 06, I just decided I was ready to get out of the laser business, which I absolutely loved it. We we had some great experiences. Um, but the market was changing um, LASIK was becoming much more competitive. Yep.
0: It was, and commoditized.
1: Little, it was very commoditized. Um, Intralace had been out, Oh, about three years, I think at the time, and it was becoming, um, pretty commonplace. And so we were, we were losing a little bit of our marketing edge. And so it just was, is less interesting to me.
0: Yeah. Um, so this, so that, this is, this is interesting because when you, in 1997, when you went to work with, the couple ophthalmologists. And then in 19, in that same around that same time, you guys decided, was it the same ophthalmologist that you worked with that in 97 that you decided to purchase the laser? And at that time, when you formed that company, it sounds like there's about a three year period where you still in clinic in the uh, ophthalmology office, or were you transitioning to a lot of your care in um, your practice that you built in 99? Or were you doing a lot of laser pre ops and post ops? Like there's a lot so, there.
1: Yeah, there is. And when, 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 uh, when we started the laser company, as the laser business from 97 on started to grow, I started shifting out of clinical care into more just running that company. So I was really kind of a part-time OD in the like, – like around 2000, 2001. In 2002, when we sold to TLC, then I went – stayed in the laser business and kept my part-time practice at the time and had completely left the ophthalmology Uh, practice at that point. Now you ask a really interesting question and that is, you know, who would this about the surgeon? Well, uh, ophthalmologists do often do not play well together. Mm. And so when, uh, the opportunity came for us to sell the surgeon that we, my friend that we worked with was not happy because that was sort of, he was losing his, uh, his really, uh, great opportunity Um, but the MSO felt like it was the right thing to do because we just weren't able to keep up financially with all the upgrades and the lasers Mm. and whatnot. So he chose, although he was given the opportunity to come with us under the TLC banner, he chose not to do that. Mm. He decided to stay independent. And instead, we brought on um, a guy named Dave Shanslin. Dave is uh, from UCS, was at the time from UCSD. Dave is probably one of the premier cornea guys on the, on the West coast. Um, if you're any anywhere on the West coast, you've, you've heard of Dave. And so Dave became our medical director. And so I had the opportunity to work with Dave, which was a um, phenomenal experience. Um, it would probably be similar to, um, you know, Steven Slade and, um, uh, and the guys that are really well known on the East coast. Um, so it was, that was just an amazing part of the experience as well. And, uh, and so just in the, by the mid 2000s, things were changing. I believe Dr. Shanslin was uh, moving out of the university setting and the TLC setting and doing some other things. And it just, it um, uh, just caused me to sort of lose focus a little bit and decide to go back into, into private practice. Um, so that from that point on from 06, uh, I've been in private practice ever since. And then just been inquiring.
0: How is the? How is it different when you own a private practice, but also are a clinical director for a for a referral center? Um, how how do those two um, two experiences merge, and how do they diverge, and how do you manage the fact that you know maybe there's other ODs in the community that are thinking, "Hey, I'm I'm sending these patients to Mick, but Mick's also got it, or to Mick and his laser you know center, but Mick's also got this private practice over here. How did you handle the potential for those kinds of um, conflicts.
1: You know, that, uh, that part of it never really came up, but we had such a good relationship with our core group of partners that uh, I don't ever remember any concern of the fact that I was in private practice. What I will tell you is it's really hard to do multiple things really well. And so (laughs) my private practice was just very much mediocre. Um, (laughs) and having Jim and I splitting the leadership roles at the laser center probably wasn't ideal either because I was only there a couple of days a week and he was there a couple of days a week. And so there was always the communication challenge of if you saw a complication and I'd have to be, you know, at the time, I don't think we were texting. So I was having to call Jim and say, Hey, listen, I saw so-and-so. So it, it, I would say my private practice suffered a little bit. Uh, the clinical role at the laser center probably wasn't, exactly ideal but the mix like we were talking about early in this conversation the mix was perfect mm. you know a little bit of private practice a little bit of the laser stuff um, was just a wonderful combination and uh, and then when when I got back into private practice full time we were growing to the point where I was able to continue to sort of be the business guy and not have to go so heavy on the clinical side
0: well then, then, so it, it basically took you a, a period of time in that private practice from 1999 to 2006. It took you a period of time to get comfortable. But part of that is probably because you weren't focused on that private practice for very long. So can we talk some numbers? So yeah, uh, yeah, by the practice in 99, if you want to talk about what you paid for it, what were you, you can, if you, what were you doing in terms of gross in terms of net and then how did that change by 2006 and kind of tell that story as well. Cause I think that's interesting.
1: Yeah. So, um, in, in 99 I was married and to another OD and we bought the practice together and then we unfortunately got divorced. And so I, she, it was really hurt my wife's at the times practice. And so, um, it, it's what she wanted to do and I supported her and worked there and sort of helped manage it. But I wasn't that involved clinically. When the marriage started to fall apart, she made it clear she didn't want the practice anymore. And so I, it sort of just landed mm. in my lap. Mm. Um, it, it was doing about 400,000 in revenue at the time. She was there full time, you know, but back in those days, the a, a typical OD practice was, an average practice was generating about 600,000 a year in revenue. So it was, it was a smaller, uh, compared to average practice. Mm-hmm. Um, we probably overpaid for it, but at the time it was our first acquisition and probably didn't know any better. And then it kind of just stayed stagnant there because after I took it over and she left, it was just about a two day a week practice. And I was able to maintain it at about 400 um, with just a couple days a week.
0: What's the average now? I've never really looked at that since, but even when I was in school, so I graduated in 2008, 600 was kind of the number that is in my head, which is crazy to think that we're talking about the same period when I'm, when I'm thinking about when I'm in school. It's just time flies, yeah. right? But but what's the average now? Do you know?
1: Yeah, it's about 750, according to, a, to some of the AOA data I've seen.
0: Is that just based on, is, is that number, if you extrapolate 600 over the course of, let's say, 15 years in 4% growth, is that just based purely on inflation? Or are people it, doing it, business better?
1: It. I think there's, there's, there's a little bit of both. Um it here's here's where I think practices get stuck at 750. If you think about a well utilized OD, somebody who comes in five days a week and is pretty much focused on patient care five days a week, it's pretty um uh agreeable to most people that you should be able to generate about a million dollars in revenue, right? Mm-hmm. So most ODs don't feel comfortable with delegation, and so what happens is they end up holding on to a lot of administrative responsibilities, and they don't, won't give up payroll. Maybe they want to pay their own bills, um, and so you can only spend so much time doing clinical work if you're spending a day a week having to be the office manager, mm-hmm. and so because of that, it, most ODs do about four days of work of OD work. And so if a a typical well-utilized OD is working four days a week, they can usually generate about $800,000 in revenue. The practices that break through the million dollar mark are the ones that figure out how to delegate. They figure out how to hire other people to do the jobs that they try to hold, otherwise would try to hold on to administrative tasks, bill paying, um, you know, maybe hiring an associate, that sort of thing. But the typical single location, single OD practice, gets stuck somewhere in that eight hundred thousand dollar range. I believe because of that reason, um, and it's it, that idea is um, w- we were actually scheduled at Vision Expo this year. Myself, my chief operating officer, another OD, and his COO. The four of us were going to do a, a panel discussion on that very topic. I was really super disappointed that Expo got canceled because I think there there was a there was a good message there like how do you break through that 800 and get to a million plus, plus? Uh, and we were just going to share some tips. Yeah, um, but I think that's why pra- I think that's why the average practice is about 750
0: 800. Yeah, well, so then so then that, that's helpful to know. And and when you when you when we take you back to your practice, you were sort of thrust in, the practice fell in your lap, um, and you you decided, you probably looked at it and said, which is interesting because I think Jim Owens has a practice as well. He sort of did the same thing as you did, but he's still doing kind of both, both worlds, clinical director and then private practice. Is that correct? Well, he ha-
1: he's now sold his practice. Oh, he has? So he's, okay. Yeah, he's, he's, f- he's full-time out of, of uh, clinical care as far as okay. I understand.
0: Okay. So, so for you, you see, okay, I'm, I'm kind of stagnant at 400. What was the fire that, that lit to say, I'm gonna grow this practice uh, and get it to, to a, the next point in your, in your development of the practice?
1: There were some limitations with the location that we were at. We were on the fourth floor on a, um, in a medical arts building. Um, the space was fairly small. There were just some things about the physical location that, uh, that I felt were limiting to our growth. And so I was still locked into a lease uh, that I wasn't really comfortable breaking, and so the only other way to grow rapidly was to go buy another practice, which is what I did in 2006. Um, there what was what made a, you
0: want to grow. Sorry, but what made you want to go grow rapidly as opposed to just trying to grow that that one practice exponentially? Was there a was there a trigger for that?
1: I think the the joy that I had in running businesses and kind of the entrepreneurial aspect of growth. And acquisition was fun and exciting to me as opposed to just going to work every day and grinding and grinding and trying to do a really good job with patients to try to grow that single location practice. Um, so I think the idea of just trying something new and, and grabbing a second location was appealing to me. Um, but I will tell you, pretty soon after I bought the second practice, which was about twice the size of the first practice, so it was about an $800,000 practice, so now I'm up to a million two. too, I realized that I did not like having two practices.
0: Mm. Why?
1: We could not get the culture right the first time. And so we were duplicating the errors in the second practice and -hmm. the headaches just doubled. So we had, uh, now I had two locations with the same problems, Mm. staffing problems. And, um, which now looking back were leadership problems. Mm. Um, but, uh, we just were not comfortable that that we were getting things right in one practice so I ran two practices for two years and my lease was up on the first one the smaller one and I decided to close the first one and take a chance and they were seven miles apart take a chance close the first office notify all those seven miles
0: in San Diego has got to be a long way
1: it's it's you got to get on the freeway that feels a long way. Right. Um, and so I took a chance, closed the first practice, but told my patients we're moving. Oh, by the way, we're moving to Hillcrest, which is Mm. far enough away that it caused people to pause. Just about everybody eventually found their way to the new location. Mm. So then now we're doing a million two in one location. And, um, that really showed me that now we've got some economies of scale. Now we can really be efficient. Um, I've got staff around me that are well-trained. I'm getting my culture better controlled. I'm seeing a clear vision of what really I want with the business. And then we hit capacity and then we grew from there and we hit capacity pretty quickly at about one six. And, uh, then I had an opportunity to acquire a small practice. It was in my neighborhood. It was a young lady that was wanting to get out of optometry, so I acquired her practice. Um and it was a smaller one like my first one. Uh, so we brought her in and then ultimately phased her out and then we got up to about two million and then we were in about twenty four hundred square feet and it was tight. I had wow. sixteen employees. That's tight. Yeah, twenty four hundred feet doing two million and it was um
0: is that type for San Diego too? Because property is way different in San Diego than it is in Nebraska. So, so is that, but, but I would imagine that every, like when I talked to Aaron, he said, you know, he's telling me about the, the physical plant in his practice. Is it just the case that people do a lot more business out of smaller square footage because of the, the rent? The rent is higher.
1: The other big, big problem is parking we had Mm. five parking spaces for the entire practice. So, Mm. um, that's, so employees had nowhere to park. Doctors had nowhere to park. It was really, um, we were really limited by just not only the footprint of the building, but also just the limited number of parking spaces to our patients. And at some point you hit a capacity where, um, you're losing business, right? Patients are calling and saying, I didn't come back because I, I can never find parking. Right. I had to go somewhere else. So, um, I immediately knew I had to get out of this location that I was in, in, in order to, uh, to continue growing. And, um, one little metric I'll throw at you about this made me think of this sort of capacity conversation is in the retail world, like if you own a gap or something like that in the retail world, they measure revenue per square foot. And that's a metric that we don't think about in optometry very much, um, but it's it, it's a measure of how much revenue you can generate per square foot of your facility. When you get up close to, you know, eight, nine hundred, a thousand dollars per square foot in revenue, it's pretty tight. Now, there are all kinds of exceptions. There's a guy that I've heard about in LA that does two million and about 900 square feet. Wow. You know, and those are kind of odd situations, um, so I know there are exceptions. But if you do, um, if you have a 2,500- square foot building and you're doing two and a half million, you're doing thousand dollars of revenue per square foot. You're, that's pretty tight yeah, pretty efficient. Um, and at that point, I think you do start to lose, lose some business and the experience isn't good. You know, we had a small optical and we would notice patients would go in there and if it was too crowded, people would just leave because <sighs> you know, there's uh, the, the butt brush concept when somebody right. sort of comes behind you, you feel uncomfortable and, and so we were seeing all that happening and I just realized that if i if I want to take this above two, I've got to get out of here and in, into a bigger uh bigger facility.
0: So then um so then you made that jump, and that's sort of where the story that I feel like I understand well or I at least know well of how how um impact meets uh Mick Kling, essentially, right? So now you build the next building, right? You, you find a space and I'd like to talk about that just for my own purposes. So you, you're in, you know, you're, you're generating $2 million, 2,400 square feet and you're uh, in San Diego, which isn't cheap property, but you find property to purchase. So that's gotta be wildly expensive. And then you put a beautiful building on it. That's gotta be wildly expensive. Who's giving you the money?
1: Yeah, great question. So Uh, this was a three-year process and there were lots of false starts there were Hmm. lots of projects that we got down the road lots of buildings that looked interesting but one of the first things I discovered is that to go out and rent or lease property was about the same cost for me to go out and buy a piece of real estate and so I knew if I could buy if I could somehow figure out how to buy the real estate I knew my monthly cash flow was going to be similar but I knew the long-term benefits of owning the real estate were going to be enormously better for me. So I got fixated on this idea of I want to buy a piece of property. And we're in a very densely um, compacted area in um, uh, just north of downtown San Diego. And so getting the building the right size plus the parking that you need was really the the tricky thing to do. And there there were a couple false starts, like I mentioned, but there was a building um, down the street and I used to pass it, and I used to love the building. I said, man, I love that building. And just think to myself and maybe point a few little thoughts upstairs and say, you know, if this building is for me, let me know. Mm. So I had a patient come in one day, and he was in, it was an engineering firm that was in this building. And um, he came in, and I told him, I said, hey, listen, if that building ever goes for sale, you know, let me know. And he said, oh, sure. Well, I never heard from the guy. And so not very much longer after that, I was just driving around the neighborhood, and lo and behold, there's a lease for lease sign in front of this building. And I thought, wow, okay, maybe I can't afford to buy it, but maybe I can afford to lease it. So it was a very iconic building um, built in the 60s, very uh, mid-century modern design. It's kind of one of those buildings where everybody in the neighborhood really recognizes it, but it was pretty run down because the current owner had not done much to maintain it. And so I just contacted the broker and I said, listen, I don't want to lease this building. I want to buy it. Uh, will, will the, will the owner sell it to me? And he said, I don't know. Let me, let me find out. So the guy calls me back, um, almost immediately. He's like, yeah, he'll sell it to you. Hmm. You know, and then we just started the negotiation process and, um, it was, uh, it was quite an experience, learning how to buy a piece of commercial real estate, multiple millions of dollars, uh, got the price negotiated to what I thought was a fair price based on my research in the market. And I had a broker at the time that was mm-hmm. helping me. And then became the challenge of getting the money. You said it was a price
0: the- before you even got the money.
1: Yeah, because the first thing the bank is going to ask you is, well, how much, you know, what do you, what do what you, do do you what do you need? Right. How much is the building? And so when you go, when you go into those negotiations with a lender and you've got all of your ducks in a row, you're, you, you're much more credible than if somebody who comes in who certainly doesn't know what they're doing and isn't clear on the finances. So I was very clear on the financials. I had my pro formas done. I had all my forecasting done. I had it really, um, ready to go and, um, uh, had the number, had a cash flow. I felt like I could make it work. And, um, went to the, all the regular banks, any you know the Wells and the mm. B of A's and all that got rejected from everybody, everybody, because they just didn't feel like it was going to cash flow out. Mm. Now, obviously they probably knew something that I didn't uh, because once I got into the building, it was tight for a while. Mm. Um, but we approached all the traditional lenders. And then there's a mark, there's a sub market of lenders out there that are, um, that, love doctors. There's some banks out there that will do deals with doctors because doctors are typically, um, pretty low risk. The default with, with doctors and loans is low. And so they're willing to write loans that are more aggressive and, um, maybe don't fit into the normal, um, parameters of a big bank. The other thing, Chris, I would tell you is this was in 2014 and 15. And this was right after the financial crash, so the banks were even more sensitive mm. about risk. The, the the mainstream banks, but the smaller banks were ready to play ball. They were ready to lend money, and um, and so I found a broker who cost me some money, but that broker was able to get me a lender, a bank I've never even heard of, out of the Midwest. Small, you know, really not a there's no reason you would ever know the name of this bank because basically all they are is an SBA lender. And they gave me a 100% actually 105% <laughs> because they actually gave me all the money plus the working capital um, in an SBA loan. Hmm. And that was the only way I was able to pull it off.
0: Okay. The, so yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. Sorry.
1: I was just going to say, and, and I should back up a little bit and say this the building was bigger than we needed. And we knew that it was going to cost more than I could afford. And we knew that, but my wife and I, my, my new wife, my current wife, hopefully my last wife, (laughs) um, my wife and I circled that building many times. And we said, you know, get a little emotional thinking about it. Even now, if this is meant for us to be, we're going to do it. So Mm -hmm. we just looked at each other one day and we said, we're going to do this. We are going to figure out how to make this building work for us. And, um, and we just,
0: from then on and never looked back.
1: And uh, so anyway, I, I interrupted you.
0: No, no, you didn't. I, I was going to interrupt you. I, the, um, so, so that is, I think again, this, um, you know, very fortuitous that it was, it was meant to be that, that you were to have that building. But it also sort of saddled you with this, this potential problem, potential significant problem with debt and with. So, how now? We'll talk about profit first. And so, uh, I want to ask this question: How would you advise somebody in the exact same position as Mitt Kling was in 2014? How would you advise them go about purchasing their dream building, their dream land? What would you say?
1: Yeah, there are so many things that I learned, and quite a few mistakes that we made along the process. And I think one of the things that I learned about construction, and I'm going through this again. We just put a pool in our backyard. In fact, today is the first. I can't wait to come over.
0: Yes, absolutely. We just finished the
1: pool today, and and um, I will tell you, uh, contractors notoriously lie to you. (laughs) <laughs> they lie to you to get your business. They give you low bids because they know you're you're comparing, and so you 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 select a contractor, and they give you a price, and you build everything around this. And then when you get into it, there are always changes. There are always additional expenses. Um, we found out that the building needed to be retrofit for earthquake uh, code, and so I spent a hundred thousand dollars on cross big support cross beams in the ceiling of this office just to make it, um, earthquake proof. Now, did the contractor know that? Probably not. You know, so that's just one example of the many things that made the, made the cost overruns of this uh, building a lot more than we anticipated. The other thing that happened is I got my wife involved in the design of it, not the floor plan, but the, the appearance of it. So she hired an interior designer and it came out really great. And um, we decided at one point, we're like, listen, if we're going to do this, let's really, really do it right. Let's make it funky and fun and cool. And I wouldn't say we didn't spare any expenses, but we we, we went big. And um, so at some point you got to pay for that. And in retrospect, I'm glad we did it because it, it, put us on the map where I don't think we would have been if we would have made it a very uh, bland sort of typical looking practice. Um, but it did come with a price and the price was again, additional cost. So the advice I would give is do your homework, build into whatever you think it's going to cost, building at least 25 or 30% more and cost overruns and um, uh, be prepared that it may even go higher than that. Uh, but if you can get into it, you know, long, long term, in the long run, I just still think it's it's the best strategy.
0: Yeah. And and so then with that, if I'm going to take it back to profit first, what bucket, what bank account am I using if I'm going to save for some of those things, right? What What's your advice in terms of the bucket that you use to save for that other thing? Is that coming out of the profit bucket? Is that coming out of...
1: Yeah, any excess cash you're gonna have to do anything with, whether it be remodel or buy a piece of equipment, has to come out of the profitability of your business. Where you put the money really doesn't matter. Um, A very good strategy is to create a vault account, which is just to open another bank account and allocate to that account however much you feel like you can afford or want to allocate to that account and just let that continue to build and grow. But that money, has to come out of the profitability of the business. And that's why being profitable is such an important part of running our businesses. Because if we are not careful, human nature and human behavior is just to consume everything that's in front of us. And if we're not careful, we end up consuming all the resources of our business. And we're never allowed to um, have the opportunity to put money aside for, for growth in the business or buying a building and that sort of thing. Um, so so put it anywhere you want. Put it under a mattress if you have to. But mm-hmm. the point is allocating it in a very deliberate fashion uh, to make sure that you're you're being um, intentional about the way you're moving that money
0: when did um when did when did the light bulb click for you about um, about running your finances of the business better uh, or differently, I guess I should say because you know, you, you sort of hear this, you know, like you said, well, people will give you money if you're a doctor and there's a lot of us that come out of school and, and they just think, well, I can, what, what's the monthly payment? I'll make that payment. Right. Or what's this, I can, I can afford that. Um, and so what was the triggering point that kind of flipped the switch for you? Was it an avalanche? Was it, uh, was it a trickle uh, that made you say, I'm going to do things differently or I'm going to refine the way I'm doing things? So
1: um, I'll give you, I'll back up just a little bit and tell you that um, how I got into this whole business finance education um, uh, s- mindset was that see, several years ago, I was a, a partner with Mike Rothschild and Amir Kashnevis and a couple other guys. And Mike has a company called Leadership OD, and that's Mike's consulting business. And Mike and Amir and I had each Um, some fairly specific roles within that consulting business and um, Mike handled most of the leadership topics and Amir handled most of the culture topics and then I I just sort of by default handled all the business finance stuff and so we started putting on leadership OD executive retreats and these were small intimate 35 doctor um, I'd like to call it and by the way Mike still does them and they're amazing if you ever get a chance to go. Um there it's 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 basically therapy for optometrists. You know, because you talk about everything except optometry sometimes. We talk about our families and our relationships and there's lots of tears and it's a really Mike has like Mike is a Southern preacher and he pulls it out of you and um and so those events um put me in a position to do some business acumen training and I thought this is kind of fun I enjoy talking about money I enjoy talking about um, business finance and then it sort of grew out of that um, I then stepped away everybody sort of went in a different direction and, um, uh, and then I just kept my business acumen training um, things that I was doing and, and put it under the umbrella of my own company and so that's how I got sort of this, this gig of, of business acumen training. I got really good through that experience at, uh, at putting my finger on what was wrong with practices because I'd seen a lot of practices that were having trouble, including my own. And so I I felt like I just didn't have a solution. I just didn't have – I I could tell you what was wrong, but I couldn't tell you how to fix it. I couldn't give you – Um, hope or guidance on how to fix it because I was having trouble myself and I was honest about it with everybody listen I don't have all the answers I can tell you what's wrong because I see it in my own practice but I didn't have the the tools to fix it Hmm. and um I got randomly a uh email from a CPA based out of Iowa and this guy contacted me said I want to I want to interview you for a blog that I'm doing, and I said, be happy to do it. And he and I never connected. Um, just our timing wasn't right. But uh, at Vision Expo, I got done lecturing, and this guy approaches me, and he introduces himself. He says, hey, my name's Eric. I'm the CPA that we never connected. I just listened to you, enjoyed it, just want to say hello, and I'd still love to you know, connect with you. I said, no problem. Let's do it. And we sort of agreed to meet at some point after Expo on a phone call. And then about two weeks later, uh, in the mail pops this book, Profit First. And he wrote on the um, inside cover, he said, uh, I use this with my coaching clients. And I just thought about you. And I think this is something that would be good for you. And Chris, as I read this book, like, my life just unfolded in front of me, all of the struggles that Michalowicz talks about in the book, and all the frustrations and the mindset that business owners have and all these concepts like Parkinson's law, we consume what's available to us and all these things just came so alive to me. And I thought, this is it, this is it, this is a plan. It's a structure. It's something that we can do to actually teach ODs how to run their businesses better. Better. So I re- reached out to McCallowitz and, um, he has an organization in and around Profit First. Um, I should say Mike Michalowicz is the author of the book Profit First. And um, he has an organization. And he has hundreds and hundreds of CPAs and business coaches that are certified, uh, what are called Profit First professionals. And these are uh, professionals, most of them accounting professionals, that go through a certification process to teach the methodologies in around profit first. And he's very protective of the brand. And so he wants to make sure everybody's teaching it appropriately. And so I said, you know what? I'm going to do this. I'm going to go through this certification process. And I got certified to teach it. And um, after I went through all that, I said, this is it. I'm ready to go. And so I just slowly started introducing it to some ODs. Vision Source got wind of it. Said we want you to teach this to vision source practices. So I went on the road uh, with Lori Sorensen, and we started to do this business of optometry. Then, and I just got the privilege of teaching this methodology. That um, at the same time I was implementing it in my own practice and seeing literally miraculous changes that was happening to the to the finances of my practice. Um, went from you know, being overwhelmed and stressed and not getting good sleep because of my debt and my cash flow problems to paying off hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of debt and to this day completely debt free except for the real estate, even in my personal life. And um it's just been a major game changer for me. Um so I as you can tell I can go on and on about this. Mm. And I'll take a no, breath. That's awesome.
0: No, let me do this. Let me let me say let's 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 pause there. First of all, we talked a lot about profit first in our first podcast that you and I did about a year and a half ago together. But I just, I know that you're doing a lot more things. So why don't we end it there and, and let you tell everybody where, where they can, where people can find you.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So um, I have a website called impactod.com. Uh, you can go there and find information. I do basically uh, three things. One is, well, I, I, I used to travel and speak, um, (laughs) that has dried up, um, for the most part. Uh, and I do some one-on-one consulting and I also do, I'm starting to do what you do, which are online courses. And, um, uh, prior to COVID, I was also hosting, uh, workshops in my office. I have a, a, a conference room and, and ODs would fly to San Diego and we would put you uh, in, in the room for a day, and we would teach you everything you needed to know about Profit First. So between the workshops, which are now virtual, uh, the one-on-one coaching and the speaking, that consumes uh, the majority of my time outside of the little bit of um, clinical care that I do now. Because we can't do the live workshops anymore, we've gone to the virtual model, and our next live Profit First web event is September 11th, uh, so uh, just a little bit over a month from now. It's going to be from 9 to noon uh, Pacific time, and uh, we're going to spend three hours and we're going to go from the start to finish everything you need to know about Profit First and exactly how you need to get it implemented and executed in your own practice. And so you can get more information. At TheProfitableDoctor.com is a website there. And there's all the registration information, agenda information. So web courses, some one-on-one when time allows. And um, hopefully uh, getting back out on the road soon to do some speaking because that's really what I absolutely love to do.
0: Awesome. I'm going to put some links. Uh, I'll put some links to both the the uh, webinar that you're getting ready to do as well as your website in the show notes. And um, thanks again for, for being on. And hopefully someday soon we'll be able to see each other in person.
1: Chris, it is always a pleasure to be with you. I really appreciate your time. And thanks so much for all your support.
0: You bet. You bet.